All right, so you have a very simple handout in front of you. It has the text that we'll be going through with the key breaks. So I've tried to make the textual breakup clear, and then hopefully you can use the handout for taking any notes that you think are useful. Um, but the, the continuation that we have in the second collection, remember we have the 375 Proverbs of Solomon that we're going through. So we continue through that, um, and what we're in now, the, the literary unit um, that I want to present to you, there's, there's basically two literary units that we're dealing with. The first one is chapter 14, verses 33, through chapter 15, verse 4. Now, the second section is on the back side of the handout. And that's Proverbs chapter 15, verse 5 through 19. So the, the first chunk of text is focused upon righteousness and meekness in word. So the idea of doing what is right and the use of controlled strength in speech. And so the, the verses... 1433 through 15:4 deal with that subject matter. There's an introduction at verse 33 that's sort of introducing the subject matter. And then there's a, a key couplet that follows verses 34 and 35. And then the last four verses um, deal with sort of the bulk of the matter to be discussed. But the middle section, that couplet there, and that talks about the righteousness of righteousness of a people, of a nation, uh, and talks about authorities, in particular a king, and how the king has an influence there. And so that will be uh, something to consider, that the words of people in authority are particularly important in terms of how they give favor, but also the idea that wise servants versus servants that cause shame are that's significantly influenced by the words that you speak when you're talking to somebody who's over you in authority. And so there's this theme of words throughout and judgment and wisdom versus foolishness. And then there's details about how to speak, those last four verses. So the introduction, the idea of sort of the consequences and the importance of, of how you speak, and then instruction with more detail about how to speak. So again, on the, the, the second half, on the second page, the general subject matter is the importance of instruction. And so verses 5 through 12, we're going to talk about the consequences of accepting or rejecting instruction. This is obviously a subject that was brought up in the first nine chapters over and over again when we're talking about the youth. And so as you're a man, when you're an adult, it's still important to receive instruction. And this is one of the reasons it's important to have mentors. It's important to have elders around. It's important to be gaining wisdom still and to intentionally seek wisdom. Um, the, the position of being a man in the world and seeking to do work and to rise makes it so that you are increasing sort of the, the risk-taking that you're doing. And so as you do that, Receiving instruction in that process is 
still extremely important. And what happens also is, even with the instruction that people receive in their youth, there are things that you're pressed to think about as you are dealing with the world, as you're starting as an adult to engage in new ways, and you realize the gaps in your knowledge more, you're pressed, and the desire to be able to ask questions and to engage with information uh, so that you can receive help is something that makes it so you need to continue to receive instruction. And then uh, there is sort of this attitude, the overcomer attitude, uh, that is dealt with in the second part. So the importance of instruction and then the application of that instruction to overcome problems. And there's the focus on the inward man in verses 13 to 17. And then in verses 17 to 19, this sort of, there's two categories of overcomers that are, that are put forward. And those two kinds of overcomers are the ones that govern themselves to avoid anger and those who govern themselves to apply the law to overcome problems. And so there's the overcoming of the internal world and the overcoming of the external world. And so those are two worlds to be dealt with. It's interesting that philosophers have talked about the two worlds of exploration, which is the inner man and then also the external world. And the Bible obviously knew of these things far earlier than that. People pretend that philosophy started in Greece in maybe the three or four or five hundreds BC. They, they like to act like that's something that the Greeks came up with. And David wrote this a good half millennium earlier. And the issues of philosophy are dealt with in the Bible more dip, deeply, richly, and concisely than anything that the philosophers dreamed of. And so we have this excellence laid out for us. So please stand for the reading of God's word. We'll be reading through chapter 14, verse 33. Um, up to Proverbs 15, verse 19. Wisdom rests in the heart of him who has understanding, but what is in the heart of fools is made known. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a shame to any people. The king's favor is toward a wise servant, but his wrath is against him who causes shame. A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. The tongue of the wise uses knowledge righteous, uses knowledge rightly, but the mouth of fools pours forth foolishness. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. A healing tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness in it breaks the spirit. A fool despises his father's instruction, but he who receives correction is prudent. In the house of the righteous there is much treasure, but in the revenue of the wicked is trouble. The lips of the wise disperse knowledge, but the heart of the fool does not do so. The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but the prayer of the upright is his delight. The way of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but he loves him who follows righteousness. Harsh discipline is for him who forsakes the way, and he who hates correction will die. Hell and destruction are before the Lord. How much more the hearts of the sons of men. 
A scoffer does not love one who corrects him, nor will he go to the wise. A merry heart makes a cheerful countenance, but by sorrow of the heart the spirit is broken. The heart of him who has understanding seeks knowledge, but the mouth of fools feeds on foolishness. All the days of the afflicted are evil, but he who is of a merry heart has a continual feast. Better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure with trouble. Better is a dinner of herbs where love is than a fatted calf with hatred. A wrathful man stirs up strife, but he who is slow to anger allays contention. The way of the lazy man is like a hedge of thorns, but the way of the upright is a highway. Please be seated. So the first literary unit we're considering, chapter 14, verse 33, the introduction there. Wisdom rests in the heart of him who has understanding, but what is in the heart of fools is made known. So even wise words are often not worth saying. It is frequently the case that you have wise thoughts, about a subject, about an issue in front of you, about something that's happening. And the best thing to do is to keep those wise thoughts to yourself. As you observe foolishness in the world, so often you see wickedness, you see foolishness, and it would be fruitless, wasteful, strife-inducing to discuss the matter in front of you. Casting pearls before swine causes them to be trampled. Giving holy things to the dogs results in them rending your flesh. We're warned to not do that. And at the same time, we can jump to the later part of the chapter and we can see that the lips of the wise, in verse 7, disperse knowledge. They spread knowledge, but the heart of the fool does not do so. And so the call is not to always be silent. The call is to know when to speak. And most of the thoughts you have, even the wise ones, are best not to speak. Wisdom rests in the heart of him who has understanding. Now, this the idea here, there's, there's this sort of a pun. The one who has understanding wisdom rests in his heart. It's there. He has understanding, so there's wisdom there in his heart. And he doesn't lose it. But that's the initial way that you would take it until you read the parallelism below it. But what is in the heart of fools is made known. And so then that pun has the second meaning drawn out, which is Wisdom rests in the heart of the fool, and it doesn't always leave his mouth. But the fool expels the contents of his heart with great alacrity. He finds foolish thoughts. He may occasionally have a wise thought, and he's happy to share all of them without discrimination. One of the great blessings of social media is that I think that the Lord has created a device that allows fools to spend their energies and stay out of our way. 
there is great opportunity for them to lay out their hearts and only those who follow them are abused by their speech. Wisdom rests in the heart of him who has understanding. But what is in the heart of fools is made known. So we're set up for this literary unit with the prejudice of be careful what you say. Make special care to not speak without a very strong idea that it will be fruitful and that it is a duty. So we have the couplet that follows. And the couplet that follows is righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a shame to any people. And when you have shame, the sense of shame is itself a reproach, right? When you're ashamed, your own conscience is reproaching you, it's rebuking you, because the pain of shame is a reminder to not do what you did. And so righteousness exalts a nation, right? right? Righteousness brings honor to a nation. It brings wealth to a nation. It brings power to a nation. But at the same time, Sin is a shame to any people. It pulls them down. The king's favor is toward a wise servant, but his wrath is against him who causes shame. Now, if that's the case, it's particularly important when you have a leader, when you have a king, that that king has a right conception of wisdom. He's going to exalt what he thinks is wise. And that wisdom, let's be honest about our own political system people view wisdom by politicians as a pragmatic consequentialism and so the leaders in politics today they think wise servants are the ones who are pragmatic and willing to do what works not what's right and you know who they think causes shame Christians who cite the Bible in public policy debates And so they make sure to push down the people who cite the Bible in public policy debates and they exalt who they think is wise. So it's very important when we have kings, when we have leaders that we are submitting to, that they have a right conception of wisdom so that they will favor the right servants. When they favor the wrong servants, when their conception of wisdom is wrong, they encourage sin. And it will be all of our shame. We will share in that shame. So the idea of, of kings, remember, kings are not just literal kings, but we need to think about this applies to leaders in every sphere of life. So the leaders you support in a business, in a household, in a church, those are leaders who you are thinking about how those leaders can be judged. What Do they have wisdom or not? Now, in order to judge if a person has wisdom, they need to speak. And so the difficulty is, wisdom rests in the heart of him who has understanding. And so there's a need to be able to hear the thoughts of people to judge them. Now, one of the things that wise people can do is they can draw out the counsel of a person. They can draw out counsel like water from a deep well. And so that idea of being able to assess. And so, generally speaking, the one with understanding is going to understand that 
every moment is not a moment for speaking. We can be encouraged to speak. Now, if we think about that a little bit further, the restraint of speech, of the one's understanding, means that you have to look at people's actions as well to determine if they're wise. And so what is it that people do? How do they perform things? What is it that they are spending their time on? Now, if they're spending their time engaged in fruitful activities, if they're spending their time on things that are a high priority, that is also a testimony to their wisdom. And so you can't always hear in detail. And so one of the things you can do also is when you're looking at politicians, kings, and you're looking at magistrates, what did they do when an opportunity to resist tyranny came up? What did they do when a bad bill came before them? What did they do to advance good bills? What did they do to protect the innocent and to resist evil as opportunities arose? The behavior of the person, more than the campaign speeches, if they're already in office, tells you what they're likely to do in the future. That's also true of lower leaders. It's true of people who you're considering for offices. And one of the reasons the Bible has the wisdom to lay out that elections need to occur at the hyper-local level, if you have one in ten households having a representative in the state and in the church, is only then can you possibly have enough insight into the lives of those people as to be able to give any sort of credible basis for saying, this is a wise one who ought to rule. And then those next councils have to spend time with each other when they're selecting their representatives to go to the next level. That process of examining people as they spend time working beside each other, living beside each other, is the biblical process for the examination of leadership. Now, to a certain extent, our own news cycle is politics-obsessed. Politics has way less impact than we like to pretend it does. You know why our country is falling apart? Not because of the politicians, but because nobody cares about wisdom and nobody cares about spreading the truth and nobody cares about having rightly ordered covenant institutions. If every one of us has our house in good order, what do you think the impact will be in five years? The economic impact, the social impact, the spread of wisdom, the fruit of that across a five-year period of time will be far more impactful on improving our own lives than anything that can happen at the Capitol building in Phoenix or the Capitol building in Washington, D.C. So that multiplying out, the power that exists, the individual in the household have far more power to shape the world close by to them than the state has to shape the world around it, though its jurisdictions be much wider. Fools often speak when they have nothing to say, nothing wise to say. Restraint and self-control and meekness are not known to the fool. Fools fail to conceal what is foolish to reveal. Fools exalt their own folly and make it known to the world around them. 
oftentimes they proudly present their foolishness and say, isn't this great? And so, oftentimes, one of the great things about not talking is that you learn a lot about the people around you. Now, righteousness exalts a nation. Sin is a shame to a nation. And a king favors the servants he finds wise, and he gives wrath to those who cause shame. In the long run, if you have someone you're serving and they want you to do something that's foolish and you refuse, they might expel you from their service. But if they don't, then if you continue to interact with them, the idea of the results of your wisdom, right? Wisdom is justified by her children. And this, this displaying, this vindicating of wisdom occurs also in the lives of individuals where as you make wise choices, it results in blessing. And the other thing is, you can oftentimes negotiate with somebody who's an authority over you to get a short leash. You can say, okay, okay, I understand we disagree about this. Let me do this little experiment applying what God's law says. And let's see what happens. And if it goes well, let's continue in it. If it doesn't go well, I'm going to have to quit because I'm not going to do what you want me to do. You can leave that part out. That's the, that's the quiet part. You don't say that out loud. Okay? That's not a part of the negotiation conversation. But you're thinking it. You're restraining your lips on that part. And so Daniel did that with the law of God as regards food in Babylon. They wanted him to eat non-kosher food. And he said, why don't we try this plan? Let us eat the vegetables. Let's see how it goes. See if God blesses it. And if you won't let me do that, or if you want me to change afterwards, I'm just going to say no anyways. They went forward and the Lord blessed it. That's how we're commanded to test God. Is we try to get room to maneuver to do what God commands for a little bit. And then we do it with our whole heart. And we expect the Lord to give us more power, more room to move. Those are the tests. So that's how you deal with kings that have a wrong conception of what's wise. And frankly, if you can, if you're dealing with somebody who's over you and they're not wise, do your best to get out of there. Now, verse chapter 15, verse 1. So we've, we've seen the importance for a people of wisdom. And we see that the king tends towards favoring what he thinks is wise. Kings reward the wise servants. That applies even more so to God, right? Because Kings are a type of God. They're, 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 they're point to God. They're pointing to his authority. And so we think about the king's favor. Ultimately, think about Messiah King. Think about God. And we think about the rewarding of wisdom. And his wrath is against those who cause shame. So now we have examples of wise speech. And the caution against harsh speech and encouragement to measured speech sort of what this does so verse 1 a soft answer turns away wrath but a harsh word stirs up anger now there are times when you have to be sharp typically that sharpness has to be used against rebellious wrath okay rebellious wrath from somebody else or a sort of wrath that you have to stare down and stand down and so 
respond, there's a place for wrath back. There's a place for anger back. But when you are trying to calm someone down still, the idea of the soft answer, the, the answer that is careful to not provoke, that doesn't mean you have to take away the truth. If you can say a biting truth in a measured and careful and courteous way, the power of it is multiplied and not diminished. Being able to speak a biting truth in a measured way multiplies the power of that truth. It turns away wrath, and here's how it multiplies the power of the truth there. When people are angry, truths deflect off of them, and they just go, whatever, and they shoot back. It's deflect and shoot back. If you say it in a measured and mild way, the likelihood of whatever and shoot back is reduced. There's a science fiction book series that I have not read called Dune. In Dune, one of the important pieces of technology is supposed to be these personal shields. The personal shields essentially will very effectively stop any fast-moving object like bullets. So the only way to kill people who wear these is to have a knife that moves slowly through the shield to get to the person. That book seems to have been written for the purpose of the analogy of saying, when your words are coming like bullets or a fast strike, they are likely to deflect off. But when your words are measured and careful, the ability to stab deep is given to those words. The probability of listening and considering reflecting is multiplied. Now, harsh words stir up anger. Harsh words stir up anger. If you say the same truth in a way that is harsh, the probability of listening is decreased. Anger for most people, is going to have the impact of making them think with less clarity. Now, let's be honest. Examine yourself for a second. When you are particularly angry, do you give your most measured, detailed, and careful examination to matters? Or do you find that when you are most angry, your consideration of things is sub-ideal? Let's settle on sub-ideal, then. And so if that's the case then applying that understanding of human nature from the revealed word of God would make it so that what we want to do is to give soft answers, to turn away the wrath, and cause consideration. Now that also can multiply strife if you stir up anger. It can create more problems. It causes distraction. It can create blow-ups. So, verse 2, The tongue of the wise uses knowledge rightly, but the mouth of fools pours forth foolishness. Now, when you speak more rather than less, it's harder to say wise things at a higher percentage. Right? Let's pretend you speak very rarely, three sentences a day. You can consider those really well, and you can make sure you have a really high rate of those sentences being wise. Right? You might like bat you know, 99%. You know, three sentences a day, these are good sentences, 
I'm able to make sure that the quality of them is high. Up that to 3,000 sentences a day. Your hitting rate is going to go down. You're not going to have 99% of them be wise. So the fool pours forth foolishness. The tongue of the wise uses knowledge rightly. Now, the wise, the one with understanding, not all of the wisdom he has in his heart pours out of his mouth. He picks which wisdom to use when. He uses it rightly. The particular truths to use at a particular time are like tools to know which things should be said when. And so selecting the right truth for the right time, the tongue of the wise uses knowledge rightly. Right? You, you might think, well, the tongue of the wise speaks knowledge. No, it doesn't just speak knowledge. It uses knowledge rightly. Now, we're not talking about the wise using knowledge rightly in terms of just ordinary life. It's very specifically, the tongue of the wise uses knowledge rightly. So this is the application to speech. The wise knows which knowledge to speak when. But the mouth of fools pours forth foolishness. There's an indiscriminate unleashing of the tongue. So careful choice about what to say. We, we are all inclined to try to hurry things. We are all inclined to try to you know, get out more rather than less. We want to be heard. There's a desire to have the limelight. There's a desire to, to feel like others get what you're thinking. And that all inclines towards pouring forth extra words. The wise uses knowledge rightly. Now, I can't remember who I heard this from, but some wag said, if your task is taking more than five minutes, you should consider whether you have the right tool. Like Anything you're working on that's hard, that's taking a long time, wonder, is there a tool that's better for this? And so, if you're approaching with knowledge in a way that is deflecting off, right? this idea of, is it possible that there is different knowledge I need to apply here? You're appealing to somebody and they're unpersuaded by truths that you think are relevant. The question of, which thing should I speak to here? And so the knowledge of the person you're speaking to, as well as the knowledge of the truth, makes it so that together you can deal with that. What do people value? Right? Sales is a skill that when you know how to use knowledge rightly, you can get through people, you can work with people, you can accomplish things by developing a connection with people. You're able to figure out how to get around obstacles, how to move through systems. And so that ability to deal with people, the highest paid positions, other than management positions, our sales positions. And that's because it's a skill that's hard to develop. It requires a wisdom to know how to deal with people and move through issues and to know who to spend your time talking to. The tongue of the wise uses knowledge rightly, but the mouth of fools pours forth foolishness. Have you ever had somebody trying to sell you something and they give you like a 30 or 40 minute presentation and you do not care about any of it? 
if they know what you care about. They could present for a lot less time. Instead of spending 40 minutes and having you say, no thanks. Frankly, you should have hung up earlier. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. That relates back to verse 35. King's favor is toward a wise servant, but his wrath is against him who causes shame. So we apply that up to God, right? This idea of God is the ultimate king. And so he is going to favor the wise servant, and his wrath is against the fool. He keeps watch on the evil and the good. This is one of the reasons why Santa Claus is an antichrist, by the way. He knows when you've done bad or good. No, he doesn't. God does. Blasphemy. Attributing that to Santa Claus is blasphemy. And so we, we, this idea is a totally unbiblical idea, and lying to children to help them to enjoy things is not a proper, good, or useful thing to do. The eyes of the Lord are in every place. He keeps watch on the evil and the good. Now, a wholesome or a healing tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness in it breaks the spirit. A perverseness in the tongue breaks the spirit. Right, there's an instruction manual for how to deal with people's spirits, deal with people's souls. It's called the Bible. The law of God tells us how to deal with other people. And when you have perverse speech, you break the souls of men. You make them function against their design. You shatter them. You put them to wrong use. But a healing tongue, a tongue that communicates words that heal, a tongue that communicates truths, communicates life. It gives life. It is a tree of life. And remember the tree of life is a symbol for the covenant and the blessings of the covenant. It points to the benefit of life for obedience. And the idea that Words are signs that communicate propositions. And those propositions, if they are truth, if they are the saving truth, if it is the counsel of God, it's a tree of life. It gives life to those who take it in. And so, the power of words, we start with this idea that we need to be careful to not speak, and we end with the idea that when you speak, you have the power to destroy and you have the power to resurrect the dead. Now, you don't have that in yourself. You can't just preach well enough to do that. But the Holy Spirit can use words of life to regenerate men and to sanctify those who are already regenerated. That speaking has the power of life, which means what we need to do is we need to have a sense of desperation to get words that make life out and a sense of desperation to not speak words that destroy the spirit, to not speak words that waste the time. And so this idea that we need to get out the words that are worth saying, one of the big things that stops that is the crowding out by voices that speak foolishness. Again, social media, how many posts are stupid? How many posts are life-giving? Okay, radio, how many radio shows or advertisements on the air are life-giving. How many are stupid? Television. Any popular media you can think of. What, what even newspapers? What books? The majority of books that I've read or listened to have been garbage. 
It's hard to find even good books. The most thoughtful way of organizing words, most of them are a waste of time. People, it was a common custom when you wrote a book in the past to give an apology at the beginning. The apology was this. Here's why I took the presumption of publishing a book. There was this sense of like, who are you? Why do you think I should read what you've written? If the apology wasn't very good, don't buy the book. The idea is, here's the reason why I wrote this thing and why it's worth your time to listen. That reflects on a culture that was more wise than ours. So, when you see the power of words, and when you see the importance of them, and you see the reality that there's a need to speak good words, and at the same time, a need to not waste the airspace, to not waste the time, there's going to be an attitude towards speaking where you're going to say, I need to exercise self-control over the tongue. And that's why the, that's why the Apostle James says, the Prophet James, forgive me. The Prophet James says, if you can control the tongue, then you can control your whole body. Because the amount of detailed control and the amount of self-control it takes to govern the tongue is the level of control that it takes to manage the whole of your body. Think about the intricacies of the tongue and how God has designed it. That you have just spent about 40 minutes listening to me make noises from my throat and by the movement of my tongue and lips have had differentiation of signs that are so intricate that you have considered ways in which the same sounds have multiple meanings in punnery. The detailed control that occurs with the mouth is an amazing thing that God has made. And at the same time, the fact that we can waste that. Right? Glorifying God involves differentiating things. A from non-A, good from evil. right? The attributes of God from things that are not the attributes of God. And so this ability to differentiate, to distinguish, speech is all about that. The Apostle Paul talks about how if you make a sound that doesn't differentiate, nobody knows what the signal means. Right? Same with instruments. If you, if, you, if you have this clutter of noise, nobody knows what the song is. If you, if you use an instrument like a horn in order to give troops orders, if the sound is indistinct, then they won't know what order was given. And so the ability to differentiate between notes, to distinguish sounds from each other, makes it so that information can be communicated. And so we must distinguish between wise speech and foolish speech. And the place to start is always to slow down the speaking and to figure out how certain am I that what I'm about to say is useful, needful, and likely to be effective with what I know about the circumstances. That kind of consideration an intentionality about speech 
has a powerful and dramatic effect. That powerful effect is to shape the thoughts of yourself and of the people around you, and thereby to shape the actions. Words have a formative power on the souls of the people around you. There is nothing you do that can have so much detailed effect on the immortal souls of the people around you as speaking. And that should be both inspiring and terrifying. And so, in your own mind, if you want to be able to have words that are right, you need to study how to answer. And then if you want to know which thing to use when, you need to study more how to answer. Think about this. What are all the revealed truths of the Bible? How many are there? How many tens of thousands of propositions? And then think about this. What are all the circumstances that you might come into in life? Do you have categories to think about which truths to communicate in which manner when? Now that should initially feel overwhelming. And then when you think about it, God has given to us his law to teach us the way of wisdom. And we don't have time to go through chapter 15 verses 5 through 19 here. But I do want to point out to you the conclusion of the section. The way of the lazy man is like a hedge of thorns. Making progress is hard. But the way of the upright is a highway. As you apply the law, and you seek to apply the law to your tongue, to speak well and wisely, the law of God gives you that training. It makes you fit to know what to say when. And so the law of God has the effect of giving you those things because it breaks down those circumstances. The Ten Commandments give to you the categories that you need to think in to analyze situations and to know what is right for the situation. And so having a careful consideration of the Ten Commandments, meditating on the law of God, that will bear that fruit of speech to know what ought to be said. I'd like to pause and give opportunity for comments, questions, objections from the voting members and those with speaking rights. I just like yelled at you all for an hour to not speak, so that would happen. All right. And let's pray. Father, I ask that you would give us wisdom so that we would know when not to speak, but also that you would give us wisdom to know when to speak. That you would help us to have wise things to say, to know which piece of knowledge is right the situation, how to use it. We thank you for your law that you've given to us that we would have categories to think in. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ.